and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host this week, Claire Biddles. Hello. So this week we watched the beloved 1992 rom-com The Cutting Edge, directed by Paul Michael Glazer and written by Tony Gilroy. D.B. Sweeney stars as a hockey player who suffered a career-ending injury, but discovers an unexpected way to return to the ice, becoming the partner for an acclaimed but spoiled figure skater played by Maura Kelly. The two skaters clash as they train together for an important competition, and eventually fall in love. Do they fall in love? Do they? (laughs) Spoilers for this (laughs) rom-com. I was writing that little intro being like, oh, all the people who haven't seen it won't know that the people fall in love at the end of this romantic comedy. Um, This is, in fact, our first Patreon-sponsored episode in quite a while. Um, Thank you very much to Patreon sponsor Todd, who requested this episode. We do have a few kind of extant requests at the moment, and um, Morgan and I haven't really been able to record them for health reasons, but if anyone has them at the moment and um, are a little bit impatient, you may, of course, request to do one with Claire or Stefan and I, as uh, as Todd decided to do. <laughs> and um, I very much enjoyed this film. Yeah, thank- <laughs> thanks, Todd, because otherwise I would have never have heard of this. And this was a, an absolute delight to watch. I'd say it goes with one of my most beloved film genres, which is three-star film, five-star experience. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. I, just, I love a rom-com. I also, it was great to watch it and know that I was going to talk about it with Gav, who knows about ice sports. <laughs> yes. This is perfect for me. You see, because this podcast is hosted by two British people, I am aware of how popular this film is in America and Canada, but Claire, Claire clearly hasn't because she hadn't, hadn't heard of this. But this is like a sleepover fave of the 90s in America. And I've seen for years and years like loads of fanfic AUs and like other fandoms inspired by this where you make one of the characters a figure skater and one a hockey player. <laughs> yes! The, the two genders. The gender roles the in this film are, are quite something. <laughs> I texted Gav this last night when I was watching it, but... The film is absolutely the kind of film where there's only 39 actually set in the world of this film, fanfics on AO3, but it's absolutely the kind of film where you could just place any of your faves onto this double act and it would work perfectly. A real fanfic fave. It's ideal. And I just find it deeply delightful that this movie is kind of an iconically popular film among people who enjoy either figure skating or ice hockey or both because its depiction of how figure skating works is of course total nonsense because the film <laughs> the film cannot happen unless it exists in a world where it's possible to become an Olympic figure skater after six months of training. Holy shit, I know. <laughs> but that's, that's what like makes maybe it I'll fun. give it a go. Because <laughs> like you watch Rocky and you're like, well he's already got boxing skills and he just does yeah. more training and you're like Rocky absolutely great makes perfect sense. This you're like, well it doesn't make sense, but I'm enjoying myself enormously. <laughs> Even I, as a, a non-ice sport expert, as Gav is, was like, apart from it taking place literally by wearing ice skates, there can't be that much transferable skills. No, from absolutely. One to the I, other. I think it's one of these things that you have to actively train yourself out of. The famous line from this is the toe pick, because it's like the different okay. kinds of skates you have. There are some ice hockey players who did some figure skating as children before they like transferred mm. over, but 
this is also this is like 90s ice hockey so it was even more violent than today so his job was basically <laughs> just slamming into people but we don't need to discuss that because realism is not the name of the game realism here fun it, yeah. romance and vibes and, yeah. and and flirtiness and two characters who are total assholes but um before we get into all of that, I should introduce the creative team because this yes. beloved classic among 90s tweens has an absolutely incredible creative team at its helm. I couldn't believe it. Unbelievable <laughs> stuff. So the director, true heads will know, they will recognize the name Paul Michael Glazer because he is Starsky from the original Starsky and Hutch. O-M-G. A show which, have you seen it, Claire? Have you seen any of it? Yeah, I have. I have it all on DVD. I love Starsky and Hutch. <laughs> of course. Absolutely <laughs> fucking love it. The later seasons, bad, very bad. But like, oh, I highly recommend Starsky and Hutch, the foundational text of like buddy cop shows and very 70s. The outfits are to die for. It's surprisingly feminist for a show that's about like, two cops who love to bang hot chicks. I can't really explain it, but like it's really respectful because all the women they're banging are like, we're just two air hostesses who love to bang hot dudes. So it's like very equal kind of free oh, love yeah. 70s vibe. It's not kind of... Mis- anyway, I'm, I will not talk about Starsky and Hutch, but, um, <laughs> but this, this director has directed several films. I've not seen the others, but he directed The Running Man, which is sort of the, the proto-Hunger Games film starring, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. And that's good too. So clearly he is one of those rare <laughs> actors who can actually legitimately make a movie. But the writer of this, Tony fucking Gilroy. <laughs> I could not believe it. I could not believe it. When his name came up, I was like, the same Tony Gilroy? <laughs> For people who don't immediately recognise that name from Adam, Tony Gilroy, most recently known as the creator and showrunner of Andor, he also wrote the Jason Bourne movies, like the Bourne trilogy. Michael Clayton, which we also Michael have an episode Clayton. on. Fucking Michael Clayton. So yeah, check out me and Morgan's episodes on Andor and Michael Clayton, in which we talk about Tony Gilroy at length. Extremely smart, politically switched on writer of kind of thrillers and political dramas. But this is his first movie. And I knew this because I remember when I was researching Michael Clayton, he kind of talked about one of his sort of earlier moments of uh, personal frustration with the film industry was after writing this as his first movie, they then made like a franchise of bad made-for-TV sequels and he didn't earn a dime. And he actually heard about one of them (laughs) secondhand after he like saw it on TV and he called his lawyer and was like, am I getting money for this? Am I getting residuals? (laughs) I made up these characters. And it was like, fuck no, you're getting screwed. So he's kind of openly talked about this in a very amusing way. But um, this film actually, despite being his first movie, came out when he was 36. So he was not like an early starter. He started out as a prose writer, like poems and novels and stuff and decided to try screenwriting to make money, which is hilarious in retrospect. That's how everybody makes money. Yeah. I mean, I guess it was in the 50s, but like... (laughs) (laughs) But it took him like six years working as a bartender before he sold anything. And um, as people who understand the industry know, selling something does not mean it was actually made into a film. So he like sold a bunch of stuff that was never actually produced. But his sample script that like got him in the door for various unmade TV shows and movies was a political rom-com. So this wasn't like his only rom-com. He was out there writing like romantic comedies and screwballs in the 80s. And then this is the one that got through the door after the 1988 writer's strike. I really want to read his political rom-com. Yeah, it's really... that sounds like... Because 
when you think about it, the kind of political thriller is its own kind of quite fast-paced, talky yeah. type script. So it makes sense in a way that he would have done a rom-com. But I, I want to see the one that's the middle of the two. I mean, this Definitely. sounds like it's what Aaron Sorkin <laughs> wants to be doing because like Aaron Sorkin yeah. loves screwball, like snappy dialogue like that, the walk and talk, which is a staple of his stuff. But he is incredibly saccharine. <laughs> Whereas Tony Gilroy is not remotely saccharine. What he, <laughs> no, the thing that he understands about this is like... The these two characters in this movie are dicks, which is a staple <laughs> of, you watch these amazing classic rom-coms in the 30s and 40s, which Morgan and I have referenced on many occasions. And the idea is that you have these two characters that really bounce off each other and are extremely flawed. And they often have like much more equal gender roles than the rom-coms you see from the 80s and 90s, because the whole point was that it was a very lucrative genre among female viewers in like the 30s and 40s. And it was all about these sort of often sort of taming of the shrew vibes, which this stuff definitely has, but also just like strong, angry women. And that is what you have here, because the introductory sequence of this movie is you're introduced to the hockey player who's just like a stupid jock who gets a bad head injury in an important game and then gets told he's got like a very small amount of blindness in one eye, but it means that he can't play hockey again. And he's just like really angry and ends up having to work a normal job and is desperate to work anywhere as as a skater. And then she is this spoiled millionaire brat whose father can afford to pay for her to have her private ice hockey rink. Oh my God, the private ice hockey rink is incredible as well. I was like, how many people, do people actually have these? No, they, they <laughs> don't. Incredible. But this is the thing, right? Because like ice sports, most people have to come from a kind of a wealthy background because it's not like football, soccer, where you can just play it anywhere mm. and teach yourself. Like you have to have equipment, you have to have access to a rink. But like a lot of professional Olympic figure skaters, they're not financially solvent because it's so Mm -hmm. expensive for like the upkeep and all the equipment and stuff. And unless you're someone who's famous enough to get some kind of endorsement deals and stuff, Mm -hmm. you're not in good shape. I mean, it's different if you're in like South Korea or Japan or somewhere like that where you can legitimately become a celebrity. But outside of winter Olympic season, that's not happening in America. Yeah. But yeah, she's this wealthy spoiled brat and she is just like firing all of her partners because she's a pair skater. So she needs a man to be her partner. And like, she's got this fantastic like Russian coach who's like, I'm (laughs) at my last legs. I'm going to pick the last man available on earth who can skate. And it's this- Literally the last man on earth. He goes and tracks him down and he's working in a, he's not working in a bar. He's 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 like in a bar Yeah, his brother owns a bar. Yeah. And I didn't also know what a bar league was. Oh, beer league. Oh, beer league, that's it, yeah. It's just like fun amateur hockey where like you win a keg of beer as the trophy. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, he's doing that and he's working construction in the back of bloody beyond and this guy comes to find him. Genuinely, the vibe is there's literally nobody left. She's so awful. (laughs) Every other man who can skate has got a restraining order out against her and I've had to come and find you. I love her. She's just so unpleasant in such a fun way. Just this <laughs> spoiled brat. She's really beautiful. She's got these lovely little fluffy outfits. So uh-huh. great. Also, I recognised her. I was like, where do I recognise her from? And she was Donna in Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. She oh. replaced the original actress in that because there's a couple of people who didn't come back for the film. And that's where I recognise her from. Playing Donna, who is also a little bit, not a spoiled brat, but like has that kind of big eyes, a bit wet, kind of feel sorry for me vibe, which she carries on quite well here, but in more of a spoiled way. She does have that Twin Peaks look. 
Although I guess that was also yeah. just the fashions of the era. <laughs> yeah. She's wearing a sweater. <laughs> they're both basically jobbing actors. They have continued to work after this, but they're not enormously famous, which is fair. Because like, although this movie has this kind of long shelf life and beloved fan base, it's not like it was a lucrative movie that is particularly high profile or famed for its performances. I mean, they're both very charming. But yeah, it kind of sets off this dynamic where they both immediately dislike each other but he is really keen to prove himself and she really needs a partner. So she and the delightful, obligatory Russian coach, played by <laughs> non-Russian actor Roy Dutrice, Anton Pomchenko, they train together. And she also has the also obligatory character in these 1930s screwball comedies, which is she has a stuffy boyfriend slash fiancé who is off screen for much of the film, but he's like a Harvard MBA guy. <laughs> <laughs> he's wearing a trench coat and that's what you need to know about him. And he looks like a default sim of like a <laughs> yes. banker. Hale Forrest played by Dwyer Brown, which is two <laughs> two very Caucasian wow. names you've got there, whoever, whoever <laughs> he is. But yeah, one really lovely piece of background I learned when I was kind of reading up on these actors is that um, to prepare for this movie, obviously a lot of it is kind of skating montages. And they both did a little bit of training, but like he, D.B. Sweeney had three months before the film to like learn how to play hockey. And he'd never played hockey before in his life. And he was given the option to train, you know, they were like, we're not going to like pay you to train the whole time, but like you go and train as much as you can. He spent three months training virtually every day to play hockey, fell in love with hockey and has been skating ever since. He is now 60 years old. He's over 60. He still skates twice a week to this day, competing in a beer league with retired Chicago Blackhawks players in Chicago. It's so beautiful. I just, Delightful. What if the real Rom was the Rom of hockey yes. itself? <laughs> yeah, he it's fell in so love beautiful. with hockey. Moira Kelly broke her ankle in the first week of filming. <laughs> Which is like, it's those are the two things that will happen with ice sports. Either you'll be horribly injured or you'll gain a lifelong weird obsession that other people can't really understand. <laughs> it's inevitable. It's one or the other. <laughs> Another thing about this that's obviously a big trend at the time, as well as the way that rom-coms were a trend at the time, is the sports comedy. The way that it shows it's a combination between a rom-com and a sports comedy is that it has the two different kinds of montages, which is the <laughs> falling in love montage and the training montage. And sometimes during the training montage, you get a little bit of the falling in love montage at the same time. It's a really beautiful crossover. Fantastic montage-centric storytelling and a nice little 102-minute so long film, which is ideal for this kind yeah. of narrative. Actually, it was kind of weird because like, as I was watching it, I was like, I actually can't tell where the kind of big denouement is going to happen because there's like points uh -huh. where you're like, are they getting too close? When's the big oh conflict yeah, going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it keeps you guessing right to the end, but yeah. Well, it doesn't keep you guessing. No. <laughs> it more keeps you guessing as to when it's going to happen. But when, yes, when, right when the, the crucial <laughs> kind of conflict is going to happen between these yeah. two people. I have to say, I can only commend on a technical level the combination of the stunt doubles and the editing. Because obviously, <laughs> figure skating is fucking impossible. It's, it's like even worse than ballet in terms of if you make a movie about figure skaters, like you can't teach an actor to become a figure skater. You can teach an actor to do a jump that revolves once round, you know, mm -hmm. maybe twice if you're lucky. It's incredibly technically complicated. So they have stunt doubles who are doing the vast majority of the skating and then they edit it with sort of shoulder and above stuff 
Mm-hmm. So you've got lots of feet that are being done by other people. And then like the upper part is the actors. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, this is completely working. They've done this incredibly well. Yeah, There's no point good. where you're like, wow, this totally seems like another person. But I just, yeah, I really enjoyed all those sequences where they're kind of learning to skate together. And obviously he at first is extremely clumsy and can't do anything. And he has to learn how to dance gracefully in unison with this woman who is unbearable to be around and also <laughs> throw her around without dying. And um, about halfway through, when they kind of decide that they are ready to compete in this big sort of national competition to regain her place on the national stage, the coach, Pamchenko, suggests his signature move, which he's never shown anyone before. It's like, you're good enough to do this now. And it's this absurdly dangerous thing that involves like throwing her around (laughs) in a way that obviously could never be done in real life. They did it with like a combination of like a dummy and stunt doubles and extra editing because like he's holding her like by her ankles and swinging her around and it's there is no way at an angle so it's kind of like swinging her like right next to the floor and then up in the air it's like what that thing the olympic thing where like you're throwing a big cannonball on a string or whatever like a (laughs) shot part or something one of these interviews with the actor he was just like obviously if you did this there's no way to get out of it unless the other person is literally a boomerang is how he described it because like <laughs> centrifugal force you're flinging her around by the legs so the only way to slow down is to slow down and like cheese grate her around the, the ice by the face <laughs> but you're not thinking about that because it's just really fun and you've got to yeah, have like a signature like, wow. move i have no idea the creative process behind this but i don't think that paul michael glazer or tony gilroy were like notable figure skating experts presumably they (laughs) knew about it because like they made this film tony gilroy you know conceived the entire thing so i assume he enjoyed both sports but it's like you have made up a move here which is physically (laughs) physically impossible scientifically yeah but it looks great and that's important it looks great and it's also a key part of one of my favorite bits of any sports film which is going to nationals just the concept of going to nationals thinking about going to nationals and then going to the nationals and then what happens after that a key point of any sports film and a key point here did you watch yuri on ice the anime gav you're not the first person to ask me this I've never seen it, even though I know, and I think I haven't seen it because I'm scared at what it would awaken in me. Well, not it's even awaken, so and it's just, I know I would love it, and it, it's it's so everything that I would enjoy. I think it's one of the things that I've read fan fiction of, but have not seen the thing. It is literally unmatched. I truly believe it's one of the best TV shows of the past decade. Yeah. The experience of watching it as it aired was unmatched, because I... I was covering it quite a lot as well, like at the Daily Dot at the time, analysing each episode because it was so juicy. (laughs) I started watching like a couple of episodes in because like I saw some like Tumblr gif of something of, I think it was the scene where, I won't explain the plot. In fact, I think we may even have done a whole episode on it because it's so fucking good. But like it's it's, it's an anime show that's like a gay romance between two figure skaters, one of whom becomes the other one's coach. And it's got this like really amazing, unreliable narrator situation and also a kind of pride and prejudice situation. It's gorgeous. There was this like viral gif early in the season where Victor, the coach character, kisses Yuri, the protagonist's boot. And I was like, I've got to see this. What's happening here? (laughs) This... Something's yeah, to me. <laughs> yes, honestly, it makes it sound like what it awakened in me was a foot fetish, which is not the case. But um, but I support the fictional foot fetish that character quite clearly has in the yeah. show. 
Also, what it awakened in you was, was this prior to your interest in no, ice skating? No, it was after. Sports? So I was really into, I was really into right. figure skating in the 2010s when Johnny mm-hmm. Weir was very big in like the 2010 Winter Olympics. So in university, I was like obsessed with men's figure skating. I watched it very regularly during the competition season in winter throughout the 2010s. And then I kind of lost interest. And then last year, I became absolutely obsessed with ice hockey. And I'm now obsessed with ice hockey. <laughs> And Gav became obsessed with ice hockey in such a rapid way. Literally, we hadn't seen each other yeah. for a couple of months. And we went for a drink and I was like, oh, so like, what have you been up to? And Gav was like, I'm really obsessed with the ice hockey yeah. now. <laughs> I was just like, this is why I was asking about the other spot, the ice skating timeline, because I'm very certain on the ice hockey timeline. Because it was we went out for drinks so and I was rapid. like, do you want like a psychological profile on each member of the Pittsburgh Penguins? <laughs> And I said, yes, obviously, because I love to hear about it from secondhand from other people. Because of your obsession with these, I couldn't believe that you hadn't previously it is watched actually this shocking. film. When, when it was suggested, I was just like, surely this is already a, a big fave of Gav's. But maybe we could talk a bit about how it's popularity, because when I was looking up at about it as well, it's clear that it's a bit more of a kind of like VHS sleepover type fave and also I did work in my earliest job when I was 13 to 14 years old was working on a Sunday in a video shop that's so perfect so I was very aware of I know (laughs) that is like the thing that's the most I'm a fictional character about me so I'm very aware of like what was you know a popular kind of sleepover video hit but this one I just hadn't heard of, and I guess it was a bigger thing. Was because figure skating and ice hockey are really not things here. Yeah, yeah, definitely no figure skating culture. So like you know we'll have like a couple of people who are competing at the Winter Olympics each year, but they're not good. Because I was kind of vaguely aware of this film, as I said, just because like the topic thing and like you know people just really love it. I was actually expecting it to be kind of fluffier than it was because it it felt to me a bit like the end of an era because like, first of all, it has much more of an 80s atmosphere than 1992, especially the kind of Cold War elements, which are still very present in ice sports because obviously like Russia is always one of the main competitors. So if there's ever a conflict between Russia and America politically, it spills over into the sports. Also just like, it felt like the tail end of this era of kind of neo screwballs as well there's one scene in this that really struck me where it's kind of in the final section where they are at nationals (laughs) and both (laughs) characters have kind of tacitly acknowledged their interest in each other and their arguments are a lot more flirty but she is kind of in this potentially broken up state with her fiance and he spoilers <laughs> and he has like slept with one of their rivals who is basically a non-character but a woman who's in the another figure skating pair also can i just say at this point that the reaction of her nondescript fiance to her fancy in this other guy is so hilarious it's he just says like to her so you have a crush on him and she's like no and he seems almost like he's encouraging her to admit that she has a crush on him because like she's an extremely intense person and so is the hockey guy yeah he's one of those sort of the stuffy boyfriend who's not like a bad stuffy boyfriend and it's like yeah you should probably just Uh go and find like another harvard nba to get married to because like he literally (laughs) is in britain for most of the film like he works in britain and she's in the u.s so it's like this relationship is like not a real relationship you don't have skype it's 1992 (laughs) And also, of course, they don't have sexual tension. But like, there's this scene where 
oh, we haven't even mentioned the class stuff, but like there's obviously this class divide between he is this like working class sort of butch hockey player whose brother owns a grotty sports bar and he like works in construction and she is this incredibly pretty like rich thing, which is also very screwball. But he takes her out as this kind of manic pixie dream boy to the sports bar and she gets drunk for the first time in her life. And she throws herself at him. And it is such a 1930s, 40s kind of scene because there's loads of kind of heavy drinking in those films. She is clearly styled in a certain way to emulate that. Like she's got this enormous fur coat. She's got this kind of fluffy bobbed hair, which is obviously very fashionable in the late 80s, early 90s, but it fits that screwball vibe. And she is like trying to seduce him really clumsily. And he's turning her down for consent reasons. He's like, you're too drunk. I don't want it to happen this way. And I just thought it was like a really well-articulated scene in that subgenre. Yeah, definitely. And there's a kind of really nice, like, classic rom-com bit where he picks her up in this big fur coat and, like, (laughs) carries her to the hotel room. And it's just so, like... Oh, yes, this is the good stuff. (laughs) It was so funny to me. Like I was reading one of the articles about, I think it was maybe one of the interviews or something, but it was kind of talking about the way that this caught on. Like it wasn't a huge commercial hit at the time. Like it made some money, but not an enormous hit. And then of course it became this hit on VHS. But there's this kind of disconnect between what is clearly the tone of the film, which is a film for adults. There's like a line where she like says that her performance is orgasmic to a press conference. And like, it's it's like a PG kind of film, but it's like sexy PG. But it became enormously popular with like 12 year old girls at sleepovers. So it has this kind of transgressive element where it feels like a mature movie. But all ice skating stories are for 12 year olds. All ballet movies, unless it's literally Black Swan, ballet movies and figure skating movies are (laughs) 12 year old girls staples. And also the main character, like Moira Kelly's character is so fucking immature. Like the whole point is that she is unbelievably (laughs) childish and spoiled and like doing this hilarious (laughs) performance where she's like stamping her feet all the time and stuff. Yeah, she basically does literally stamp her feet. (laughs) The guy, because he's like just a jock guy, but he's like a nice jock. He has this sort of accessible quality to him, I think. Like he seems like an adult, but he also is really immature, which makes sense because like they're both athletes who have been sheltered from life in one way or another and are really obsessive. Yeah. It's not too overdone. It's just like quite nicely, simply done when he goes back to kind of work with his brother and his brother is like, you know, I never understand you wanting to do this ice hockey and stuff. Got like a mini Billy Elliot subplot with him and his brother. His brother's like, you're figure skating a man? (laughs) (laughs) But then at the end, there's like, there's a cut to the brother in the bar and they're all like watching it on the on the bar TV and stuff. And it's like, oh, the brother came along at the end anyway. And that's nice. But yeah, it's like everything about it that's like the class stuff, the kind of like gender role stuff. It's just like, we have accepted this, that this stuff is opposites and you know how this works, which is in a way why I'm not surprised that it is so ripe for fan fiction AUs because it's, it's so tropey, but in a way that it just like, lets the kind of writing and the performances run free because we understand the exact structure of the story and the exact structure of the different roles as pertains to kind of the class difference and the genders, the difference between the sports and stuff like that. So it's like, it's the kind of film that I think that is now being made by places like Netflix kind of the other way around. So 
Netflix and Amazon making things like the film of Red, White and Royal Blue and things like these very kind of fanficy and even stuff like All the Boys I've Loved Before and The Kissing Booth and these very kind of things that are very tropey, but based on existing novels that were then based on fanfic and it's kind of like this one's the the other way around it feels familiar but it's being made in a different way yeah do you know what I mean I mean as ever it's very interesting to kind of look at these even like this is a decidedly b-list rom-com even though it's very beloved right but you see kind of the current rom-com renaissance where there is now an acknowledgement like over the past five years in the industry that people want rom-coms and primarily that's something we're seeing through streaming services like other than obviously stuff like Hallmark where you have rom-coms all year round but the vast majority of the new rom-coms either are like misunderstanding the genre in some way like they're too dark or whatever or they're just kind of mediocre like we've had so many rom-coms including one starring really famous people like we had a Keanu Reeves Monona Ryder movie which was so bad that like I think you're probably the only person I know who watched it (laughs) And I only watched it because I've seen every single film and made-for-TV movie that. See, Keanu that's the only reason I knew you'd done in. it because I didn't look you up on Letterboxd or anything. I was just like, I know that Claire watches every Keanu Reeves film, but I know that it's not good because you would have mentioned if it was good. And every review I saw was like, "Please ignore this film. It's very disappointing to say this, but Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves Robcom is dog shit." <laughs> and during the the Keanu Club project, which was where every week starting in lockdown, me and my friends watched a different Keanu Reeves film until Legendary we watched quest. them all. And there are, there's so much dog <laughs> shit there. The thing about Keanu is that he's so nice that he just says yes He just yes agrees to, to do stuff. And so many of them, when we were getting to the real dregs, he was in it for like three minutes and we were like, oh God, we're having to watch this whole thing. But that one, we were really dreading it because we'd heard that it was so awful. And we also love Winona in yeah. Keanu Club as well. Her and Sandra Bullock are our secondary people that we that we deeply love. But yeah, it's just like such a shame. But it, you're right where it's like they've got all of the things that they need, but they can't put it together properly. It's connected to the way that Hollywood star power has sort of died. And there's a misunderstanding of how star power works. And I think we're about to see this unfold in that new movie that's like a fake relationship starring what's his name and what's her name. Like the two blonde hotties. Oh yeah, um, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Sydney Sweeney and Sydney somebody Sweeney else. Sydney and that blonde guy. Yeah. <laughs> Adult, Adult blonde, blonde man, Ken Doll man. So I know for a fact that he is great because he's in the movie Everybody Wants Some, which is hilarious and he's very funny in it. Oh, yeah. He's also in uh, Top Gun Maverick in a very fun role. So he is great. He has this media narrative now where he is very keen to be an A-lister and there have been several attempts to make him a megastar And unlike with Army Hammer, where there was the same narrative, it's not like, oh, this guy's secretly shit. It's just, it's been like bad luck, you know? It's like, oh, the film's flopped or like the pandemic showed up and stuff. So it's like, it's just not happened for him yet. And I was like rooting for him because I was like, you know, he is so fun and I want to see him be in a good movie. And Sydney Sweeney, I've not really seen much stuff, but she is clearly very talented. And they put these two hotties in a movie together and there was an early media narrative of them maybe having an affair on the set because it was an R-rated sexy rom-com. And I was like, we're so back. This is, finally, this is it. And they released a trailer and it was like the biggest damp squib of all time. And then the more promo they do for it, all the promo makes it just like a dreary, embarrassing, cringe nonsense. The chemistry is, it's terrible, right? And it's like, you have managed to fumble the star power 
again. You've truly <laughs> fumbled it. And that's what happening, what's happening with these rom-coms, right? Because it's not enough to just have Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder. You have to be crafting characters around their personas. And like, if you have a movie yeah. that is written by someone good, like Tony Gilroy, you don't need two really famous people. Yeah. You need two people who are well cast, which is, you know, D.B. Sweeney looks like a fucking hockey player. And is like right for the role. Like he looks <laughs> just like a hockey player. And uh, Moira Kelly's very good at playing this sort of like stuck up bitch role. And they've got fun chemistry and that's mm. enough. But crucially, it's a character based story, right? So you have, like you said, you yeah. have this like dual structure where it's the classic rom-com, you know, hating each other, then getting together and having a conflict and then getting together again at the end. And then you also have this sort of going to nationals, <laughs> like sports contest. So you've got this perfect <laughs> structure and then everything wrapped around that structure is character based because you have all these scenes where, you know, they're exchanging gifts that are sort of poorly chosen for each other, but tell about their own personalities and there's also this subplot with her dad who we've not mentioned but she's got this quite controlling dad and it's clear that one of the kind of through lines in their story is that she doesn't necessarily enjoy skating very much and this Mm. is because it's like her father has kind of pressured her into this career that she's not having fun in and she wants to succeed because her dead mother never won an olympic medal and i did actually think once again spoilers for the ending now but like the film ends with the great romantic clinch between these two characters who are bickering right up until the last moment hilariously but um the dad doesn't really get comeuppance which my friend and I found a bit disappointing when we watched it but also it kind of feels like her story isn't fully concluded because you want her to either quit skating or succeed in a way that's to do with her embracing her love of the sport and like being experimental and having fun and instead yeah. they just do the Pamchenko. And I'm like, this is the writing note that I have, which is that there should be this sense of sort of enjoyment they're sharing, which is something you do get in Billy Elliot, which is the the smart person's mm. version of this film. Yeah. And I think that is tied up with what you were saying about how you don't really know when the, when the kind of climax is going to be. Because the climax is right. So like full spoilers for the final scene. They're about to go on and do their kind of routine at the Olympics, which by the way, the Olympics is shot like it's some kind of like late night talk show. It's a really strange shoot and really strange lighting. She basically before the routine says that she's quitting skating and then he confesses his love to her as they're about to go on the ice, which I was like, don't throw her off. This is I was also dick- just like, this to me was like, I was watching it. I was like, this means he's fully embraced figure skating because that's the kind of melodrama move, <laughs> the kind of nervous. <laughs> this is the reason why the place you go to get your points when you go figure skating is called the kiss and cry because everyone's fucking <gasps> over. They're mad. Everyone there is mad. <laughs> I love that. So he's about to go on and he's confessed his love and then they go on and they just, and she's like, I'm going to do the Panchenko. I'm going to do it. And then they do it and then they finish and then everybody's applauding. And then she says, oh, I love you too. And then they kiss and it freeze frames and that's the end. But yeah, there's no like, it's like they've concluded the rom-com bit, but they forgot to kind of conclude the, the, sports, the sports film bit and like, bit. And like her, her arc. Because her arc yeah. is much more complicated than his because his arc is just like can you let go of masculinity enough to become a figure skater and the answer is yes i also really like how the how the costumes feed into that because there's a bit earlier on where they're fitting them with the costumes and they're all these like kind of typical really sparkly really like kind of over the top decorative figure skating uh, costumes and he dramatically rips a bit off of it in a like oh do we have to wear these things man like I'm just a guy from the outside. I'm a simple guy. And then at the, by the end, they are actually wearing these quite kind of cool 
uh, figure skating costume. She's wearing this little like black velvet skater dress and he's wearing this like voluminous shirt with like a graphic print on it and it's all like black and white and I really enjoy how he's like I have embraced this sport but in my own way yes (laughs) it's very beautiful I'm sure it corresponds a lot to like 90s skating in a way that neither of us pick up on because like this was an era when there were these like absolutely hugely popular American skaters around the Winter Olympics like women obviously but also pair skating like pair skating is often the stuff that gets the most media attention because it's like easy to understand and you get like fun little sexy vibes and stuff you still get that now But the thing that really cracked me up in that final sequence is there's a pair from maybe Germany or Austria or somewhere that have this like absurd little comical lederhosen outfits that just look like these ridiculous little, you know, (laughs) Pinocchio puppets. They look so... And the thing is, when you watch the Olympics, there are always like three or four competitors (laughs) who have these ridiculous, sometimes racist. There's often a few, like there's a couple that will be like Native American costume themed and they're from like (laughs) fuck knows where in Eastern Europe or something. And it's like, you've got a lot that are kind of traditional sparkly like the the russian outfits are often quite traditional but like when i was really really into men's figure skating in in the 2010s like i was saying that was kind of the johnny weir era where like it really was kind of the battle of the gender roles in the men's figure skating because you had these two men's figure skaters so it was this guy named evan lysacek who is now vanished from public as is expected so the vibes were there was evan lysacek jeremy abbott and johnny weir jeremy abbott great skater evan lysacek Great skater, obviously, because he won the gold medal, but he was so fucking boring. And, like, the media (laughs) narrative was, like, Johnny Weir is very fanboyant and very gay. Evan Lysacek is straight, wears extremely plain minimalist outfits, talks a lot about athleticism, and is, like, not kind of... He doesn't do a lot of, like, fancy choreography. So it was, like, extremely gendered and homophobic. It was very much like that. And, like, obviously, Johnny Weir also not a pleasant person at all, we now know. But it was very easy to kind of look at that and see the kind of the biases at play in the media coverage and within the sport itself. Because, like, it is simultaneously a sport where there's a lot of openly gay male competitors and also a lot of kind of homophobia and, like, a lot of sexism as well toward, like, what women are allowed to look like and what to wear and kind of their the body shapes and all that bullshit. Yeah, it was just interesting to think about that while watching this film, basically. I've lost my train of thought, but um, that is always <laughs> that is always close to the surface of figure skating. Is like, it's very... It's very picky and conservative. And as this movie touches on in kind of the final sequence, very, very much based on like judging. So there's a point where he's like, oh, it's great. We did really well. And then the judges all give them like, you know, five out of six instead of six out of six. And he's like, what the fuck is this? It's not really biased. And it's like, you guys really should have warned him about this beforehand. (laughs) Yeah, poor thing. I, I do love his himbo reactions to stuff. Just a very enjoyable watch. I really... I had a great time. <laughs> it was delightful. And there was all these sequels, which I oh my God, yeah. don't think I'll be seeing. Wild. So no, 2006, so The Cutting Edge, Going for the Gold. 2008, The Cutting Edge, Chasing the Dream. And 2010, The Cutting Edge, Fire and Ice. <laughs> I don't believe these are good films. The original people are not involved. Apparently, they asked the original two actors to come back for the second one and they both they agreed years ago we'll only come back for a sequel if both of us agree and they both agreed not to come back because they were getting paid absolute dog shit and apparently the script was terrible and db sweeney literally said that in an interview he was just like yeah there's absolutely appalling script (laughs) and i'm like that's (laughs) truly damning it's like we're not coming back for this we're gonna stick with our normal kind of mid-range things (laughs) but yeah they had a few of these i mean it is tricky to recapture that fire because you do have to have good writing and well cast mm-hmm. and it's not really like there's always like a couple of kind of winter made for TV rom-coms that are about 
figure skating or ice hockey or have some kind of format like this. I've not watched any of them, but the hockey ones are apparently very funny, much like hockey romance novels are, because they're often written from a perspective (laughs) which does not understand the sport of hockey, which really does intrigue me, because, like, of all the sports to sexualize, why this one? Because, like, they're not... Yeah. They're ugly and they don't have teeth and stuff, but it does have, like, a certain violence and butchness. Yeah, I guess so. I guess there's the kind of, like, masculinity of it all, but also they're, like, really wrapped up in loads of stuff. Yeah. (laughs) So you can't really see them. And also another funny thing about that is that I kind of knew that hockey was popular amongst kind of young women because of fanfic and because there's so much fanfic about hockey players. There's, like, the separate, the fanfic hockey people and then there's, like, the romance novel hockey people, which are, like, the twain do not meet. (laughs) It's so mad that nobody has, like, because you get so much now of fanfic authors crossing over so it's really it's mad to me that that hasn't made the there are there are like gay hockey player novels right but like the straight hockey player novels are kind of different and also much more popular like there's ones that are like big bestsellers but we won't go into it. I will link to in the show notes. There was like an episode of, there was like an issue of the fanfic newsletter I co-edit with Elizabeth Minkle, the rec center. I did like a little explainer a few months ago when there was this big controversy where there was this massively popular oh, book yeah. talk TikToker who had been exhibiting disruptive behavior in connection with a hockey team that had brought her in to do PR because she was talking about ice hockey romance novels and like connecting it to real players. And it got like way too close and one of the hockey players' wives was being like, this is making us really uncomfortable. It's like disrupting our lives. It's not It's not appropriate. And it became this huge controversy. And it was also like very clearly who, who was in the wrong. It was just like, you need to behave more appropriately to these people who are in the public eye. And I remember there were being quite a lot of confused media coverage of it. I was like, I wish I could have been able to write about it at more length. <laughs> Basically, one of the things is that like, although hockey has like a lot of intense fans, most of the players aren't celebrities or public figures in any meaningful way. So it's not really the same as if you're behaving this way to like yeah. David Beckham. It's someone who is earning a significant amount of money mm. by normal personal standards, but is just like some guy. And a lot of them don't really have particularly notable media training yeah. beyond like, if you go in front of a microphone, you just have to say you want to get pucks in the net, <laughs> which is what they, mo- they mostly say. <laughs> they can't articulate why they're feeling uncomfortable because they're being harassed by young women. Cause that's not a role that is like easy to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Love this movie. Love Yuri on Ice. The thing that Yuri on Ice really has in its favour is that because it's animated, you can animate the full skating programmes and there's loads of really amazing... And it's a lot of it was rotoscoped, so they had like a professional figure skater who choreographed these Olympic-level programmes that are gorgeous. And so you can have loads of those sequences, which you just can't have in a normal movie for reasons we talked about. But um, I think this film did a really solid job of that. I imagine the sequels probably did not do as well. But yeah, thank you so much to Todd for sponsoring this episode. Thanks, Todd. If anyone wants to request an episode from me and Claire or me and Stefan, you may go over to Overinvested Podcast at Patreon and um, request one. You have to go and sponsor us, obviously, and then send a little message asking us to watch something like a movie or a couple of episodes of a TV show or whatever. And uh, we will be thrilled to do so. Love a little request. And also on Patreon, the most recent episode from me and Morgan is... um, a review of the terrible Emerald Fennell movie, Saltburn. <laughs> I am also a hater and I'm really excited to listen to your eviscerating. I was actually re-listening to, before I went to see Saltburn, I was re-listening to yours and Morgan's episode about Promising Deep Young Woman. Thank you very much. Just, 
Just to fully immerse myself in the hatred, my sweet Barry Yeah, Keown I mean, obviously we all know he's... Be the thing is, like, he can do a couple of duds and everyone's going to be like, well, that's fine. We all know you're very talented. You generally yeah, choose quite good fine. roles. Hopefully he's not going to have yeah. to play the Joker because that's just a thankless task. Oh. I don't feel like he needs <laughs> oh, to do the Joker. I don't think we need another Joker. I also don't feel like Robert Pattinson's Batman franchise no. needs a Joker. And I hope and suspect no. that everyone involved there <laughs> understands that too. Um, we've already got enough Joker to be getting along yeah. with. But um, <laughs> but yeah, Saltburn on patreon.com forward slash overinvested podcast where you can sponsor us and get access to lots of exclusive content. And um, and also last week's episode, if you missed <laughs> it, was on the new Hunger Games movie with Stefan, which we had great time talking about. Also really enjoyed that episode and also enjoyed how even though it wasn't an episode that I was on, you still managed to insert <laughs> something about how I'd seen a film an insane amount of times. <laughs> yeah, you've seen West Side Story just a normal a normal volume of times. Just a normal weekly visit to see West Side Story during and its for cinematic reasons. run. Just for normal reasons. Yeah. And next episode is going to be, just so excited for this, Doctor Who, where Yay! Stefan and I, if you listen to the end of last week's episode, you will know that Stefan is beyond qualified for this task because <laughs> in addition to being a lifelong Doctor Who fan, I mean, I love Doctor Who, but he loves Doctor Who like in his blood. He grew up on the same street as Russell T Davies and half <gasps> of his friends work on the new TV show, although he's no. Not have spoilers. Yeah, he fucking oh loves God. Doctor Who. So he is he's been in Doctor Who, as have many <gasps> of his compatriots, because they're all Welsh comedians and actors. It's <laughs> kind of like in New Zealand where like everyone has been in Lord of the Rings, Lord everyone Rings. in Wales has in the entertainment industry has been involved in Doctor Who. <laughs> so at the moment, I'm sure any Doctor Who fans listening know this, but at the moment, now is a perfect time to just dip in and watch a little bit of Doctor Who, which is in Britain on the BBC, in the US on Disney Plus. And they brought back David Tennant and Catherine Tate for three episodes by the amazing showrunner Russell T Davies. The first two have aired. The third one will probably be out by the time this episode comes out. Just this wonderful three. The first two are so fun in completely different ways. Cheesy, gorgeous, delightful, very fun vibes between those two actors. And then after this, we will be getting the new Doctor, Shuti Gatwa, who is a charisma machine. I cannot wait to see what he's going to do with this role. I can't wait to see the costumes. I am thrilled for a good Doctor Who. So that'll be like a Christmas special. We'll already have the episode out by then, but um, I'm looking forward to meeting him because I just, I already feel like I'm going to love him. And I feel like there's going to be good writing for the first time in quite a while uh, (laughs) because I stopped watching during the uh, the last era of the Doctor because like I loved the actress, but the writing was just so oh blah. blah. Yeah, I thought it was such a shame for her because obviously you get you have so much weight on your shoulders being the first gal Doctor, and then you just she was so good in the role as well. But it was like yeah, yeah, it just couldn't couldn't be having with it. But anyway, those three David Tennant specials. If you're on Tumblr, God knows you will be aware. God knows you'll be aware that this show is happening, but the David Tennant return. I'm not even going to begin because I'm not going to be able to stop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it should really have been a three-part. We've not really done a three-person episode in a long time, but like I think Stefan (laughs) Stefan and I have this covered. Um, I don't believe you and I have picked what our new one next episode is going to be, but I think it'll probably be January. Um, As always, show notes for this episode, overinvestedpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at overinvestedpod, Tumblr overinvestedpodcast. We love it if you rate and review us on stuff like Apple Podcasts or Podbay or wherever it is you're listening to this. And uh, indeed, share the episode. If you have a friend who loves The Cutting Edge, 
share the episode around please post do. it on socials gorgeous and um yeah find me at blue sky at gavia hello taylor at tumblr and letterbox where i log all my movies claire where can we find you um you can find me blue sky and twitter the dying platform of twitter at uh, ms claire biddles you can find me on letterboxd at just claire biddles and you will never find me on tumblr because it's a secret <laughs> yeah, actually, I don't think we're little Tumblr pals. No, goodness. I'm not. I'm not Tumblr pals with anybody I know in real life. That's completely fine. I fully, su- <laughs> I fully support that. All right. So, thank you once again to, for Todd for requesting Thanks, and sponsoring Todd. this delightful episode, and uh, we'll see you all soon for Doctor Who. Woo! Bye bye. Bye. <laughs>